The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. We've got... uh, Kind of an out-of-the-blue topic today, not really related to anything we've talked about for a while. We're going to talk about uh, common mistakes attorneys see in financial powers of attorney. Financial powers of attorney are important for a whole lot of folks out there that want to be prepared for a day when maybe you can't uh, make your own financial decisions, you're incapable or or uh, out of commission, as they say, and uh, you need someone to assist you in that regard. And Having those permissions set up ahead of time is really the only efficient way to make sure that uh, someone can step in for you when needed. So, um, you know, it's a topic we've talked about a little bit in the past, but uh, it's been a while. So we thought we'd bring it up again and just uh, provide you some food for thought when you're considering your own financial powers of attorney uh, in your own uh, planning activities, if if you will. So Jim's with me. He's actually uh, picked up an article from Kiplinger's that prompted this topic. He hoards these topics or these articles over time. This one, I think, came out towards the end of 2022, and he's been waiting for the for the day to bring it up, and today's that day. So Jim, thanks for joining me. You can proceed with whatever you want to start to share with us from the uh, article. <laughs> Well, I love your your introduction. Thank you. Uh, And yes, listen, I I love how Chris put it. Today is the day as if we were planning. It's got to be July, Chris. It's going to be around my birthday. We're going to talk about this. Um, By the time this show airs, your birthday will have happened. Oh, that's right. So, this, we, we are so, pre-recording many, many shows mm-hmm. because Chris is off I'm, to, I'm don't tell me, going you're going to go sailing, yeah. or not sailing, but Yes, I guess sailing, a boating uh, on some river uh, in the uh, Eastern European countries, right? Yeah. Yep, yep, that's what I thought. Uh, So Chris is out gallivanting with his family and doing a bucket list item for his mom, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, just today when we're recording, folks, a hectic day, a lot going on. Chris is trying to get the hell out of Dodge, as they say, and I've just got a ton of things. So I keep a list of, of articles and things that I find interesting. And I found one that I had saved in December, December 29th, as a matter of fact. It came out on December 27th from Kiplingers.com. And uh, Wealth Advisor, I don't read Kiplingers, but Wealth Advisor picked up on it. And I do I get email updates from Wealth Advisor. Uh, probably they picked up on it also, Chris, because right around the holidays, they need filler because Wealth Advisor usually doesn't uh, repost things from Kiplingers, but I think they were looking for filler. So it just all kind of worked out. They needed something. They posted it. I saw it. I saved it. And the reason I thought we would do it today, it's kind of a topic that we could probably cover in about 45 or so minutes if Chris doesn't go on and on and on. And it's one that uh, people overlook. And everybody is going to do a power of attorney. The biggest thing I can tell you is work with your attorney and don't just 
take your attorney being the attorney who's actually going to put the power of attorney together. Don't misconstrue those two words, attorney, the two different uh, uses. You're going to hire a uh, attorney to put together your power of attorney. When you're working with your attorney, the biggest problem that I see, and we're going to read this article, which was written by an attorney of the five biggest problems she sees, but at my practice or in my 24 years of helping people retire, the biggest thing that I see are many attorneys are just lazy and they use a boilerplate simplified POA form written in very generalized boilerplate language. Um, I'm, a, as you know, a, a closet estate planner, and, and I didn't want to say a closet estate planner, estate planner wannabe. I just kind of geek out on estate planning, and I like kind of following it and learning about it. And I don't belong to Wealth Council, Chris, which is a group of attorneys who specialize in estate planning, but they let non-members kind of tag along, if you will, to some of their events and things like that. So I do go to them in the non-attorney capacity, obviously. But I have learned that one of the advantages of being uh, in their organization is they have very sophisticated software. And sometimes I attend uh, online classes on how to use their software. Not that I have it, not that I use it, not that I ever will. But they talk about different things that you can go in and edit and change and different language that you would want to use. And then the attorneys all share with themselves custom language that they've created to insert into documents. My point is, folks, a good attorney uses these software programs as a starting point, not the end point. But when Peter, Peter Scott, used to do the podcast with us before he retired, who was a estate planning attorney that I respected greatly. And many of you longtime podcast listeners probably appreciated Pete's input over the years. One of the things that he used to always share with me is that so many attorneys just get these programs, Chris, and pretty much print out the boilerplate without putting any edits in without taking and customizing the document specifically for the client at hand, more of a lazy man approach. That's going to be the big thing that I'm going to encourage you to ensure your attorney doesn't do by asking them to make some specific edits, edits that I will share to you that this attorney suggested and edits that Chris and I will share with you that just through our experience in retirement planners, we feel can be very helpful. Because one of the things to remember, it's too late to put a power of attorney in place to help you once you become incapacitated. You have to have all this done beforehand. And if you wait to the last minute, it may be too late or worse, you may put a generic POA in place thinking you have something good. And then when it's needed, the people who are trying to help you won't have the ability to help you. So a power of attorney is a very powerful document. You are going to grant someone the ability to step in and handle your finances. We're not going to get into limited power of attorneys uh, you often see a limited, it's just as the name applies, you're going to grant somebody who lives somewhere very limited power to step in for you to do one thing. You often see a limited power of attorney in a real estate transaction. Somebody can't make closing. They're going to appoint someone the power. Let's say I wanted to buy a property uh, here in Colorado. I don't know why I want to move, but let's say I did. And I happen to be in Alaska salmon fishing. I could theoretically grant Chris a limited power of attorney to represent me, and I would because I trust him immensely, and he would be able to go to closing and act in my capacity under the limited power of attorney. But because it's limited, it's keyed into just that event. Chris can go in and handle the documents at closing. He can't then go to Schwab and drain my Roth IRA. It doesn't give him that power. It's a very limited power. We're not going to talk about those limited powers of attorney. 
we're really talking more in the sense of a durable power of attorney. This is far more broad. You're going to grant a lot of powers to people. Often, some of the powers that Chris and I are going to suggest you consider are overlooked by most attorneys. If you get a good estate planning attorney, they will think of these things or know these things and probably even more than I'm even going to share with you because they're professionals in estate planning. I'm not. I I just geek out on it. I know enough to get me in trouble. But a good attorney will actually interview you and pick up and ask a lot of the things that Chris and I will chat about today. But sadly, many attorneys are not that. They either treat estate planning as a side gig. Hey, I'll do a contract. I'll do business planning. I'll do a divorce. And oh, yeah, I can do estate planning for you as well. What do you need? You might run into attorneys like that and they feel empowered because they have very sophisticated software, but they don't know how to program or use the software or the questions to ask. Very similar to the software we use for projecting retirements. The software is actually quite dumb. We, or Chris's team, has to program everything into it. And they just know how the software works. And they know how to edit it uniquely and get it to contort to each client's situation as close as possible. They know the strengths and the weaknesses. They know what defaults to use and what defaults to override. And that comes through years of experience. You get a lot of attorneys with these powerful software programs now, and they don't ask enough questions. So I'm going to hopefully, or Chris and I are going to hopefully chat with you and give you some food for thought to ask the attorneys about. And don't be afraid to push back a little if they say, oh, you don't need that. Ah, oh, no, no, you don't need to list your real estate by, by legal address. Don't worry about that. that now you don't have to. We'll explain later what we mean by that. And this was from Chris. Chris warned, excuse me, Pete warned Chris and I that there will be attorneys kicking back and saying to our clients, you don't need to do that. And he was adamant the client does. And he would share with us, Chris, if you remember, how he loved it in the sense he made a lot of money arguing cases in court that could have easily been handled with a proper POA. Yeah, and I think this is a lot of these nuances, whether it's for retirement planning or estate planning, which is, you know, kind of the area we're going to talk about today. Uh, you learn a lot with experience and seeing things that didn't quite work out the way you were hoping or didn't evolve the way you were hoping. And, and a good experienced, been in the business for a long time, estate planning attorney will have got, you know, run across little speed bumps here and there where things didn't maybe work out exactly as hoped with, with the wording that was used before and they adopt new wording, et cetera. And this is kind of what we extracted that, that experience and that, those, those little tidbits, those nuggets that kind of the, the nuances that can really improve your, your documents from, uh, Pete. And we, uh, um, don't have him anymore, but his legacy lives on in that we've stored up all these little tidbits that he shared with us in the past and and we share them, you know, reshare them essentially with you. And there's, you know, other attorneys. It's not that Pete uh was the only person who's ever mentioned these types of things, but uh he's in that group of or was until he retired, very intelligent, very well-schooled, and very and highly experienced attorneys that focused on estate planning and, um, you know, maybe had insights that other attorneys uh, may not have developed yet. Yeah, well put, well put. Okay, so we're just going to kind of go through. The, these are from the attorney. Uh, the article, again, came out the end of December. It's from Kiplinger's. It's dated December 27, 2022. Um, I suppose, uh, I won't mention the attorney's name. She She... It's it's a female. I, I don't know if it's right for me to mention her name or not, even though it was a public article. Can I mention the, the author by name, do you think, or not? Well, I'd probably leave it out since she's not okay. here to add clarity. add clarity to anything that we're reading we're and discussing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to go through her thoughts, and then we'll share some of our thoughts on things you should consider. But she begins that a financial power of attorney is a powerful tool in your estate planning tool belt. I didn't know everybody had an estate planning tool belt. 
But if you don't take careful consideration when creating this document, you could face serious consequences. Read on to learn five of the biggest mistakes to avoid. Okay, so again, this is the attorney's thoughts of what the five biggest mistakes are. Chris and I will add some of our thoughts and things that we have seen as well. So she begins with, and I don't know if she put these in order of the number one mistake or if they all have equal weighting, but her first one listed as number one, failure to name an alternative agent. So let's add a little clarity there, folks. When you create a power of attorney, you, uh, uh, the person who's creating it, often called the principal, if you will, are going to name agents to act on your behalf if you can't. As I already said, in a limited power of attorney, you're not even incapacitated or anything. You just can't be there at closing. You're going to have someone else close for you. In a durable power of attorney, you actually create it while you're healthy, while you're, you're cognitively fine. You can make legal decisions, but you're planning ahead in the event of your incapacity, who is going to step in and help with your affairs. And even if you're married, you still need a power of attorney. And you should specifically grant powers to your spouse. Oftentimes they'll name their spouse. Spouses will name each other as their agents. Get that set. Why would that be important, Chris, in the case of retirement, you think? I'm throwing you a curveball here, but I think you could hit this one out of the park. Why would a husband and wife need a POA, especially as it relates to retirement? Well, Specifically, there's a couple of issues. The one that jumps out, as since we're focused on retirement, are retirement accounts that are not joint. You cannot name them and to be jointly held, which if they're jointly held, then you kind of have that financial decision-making power in each of you. So if hap- some, something happens to one of you, the other can naturally step in to make transactions and control that account. But an individual account, like a, an IRA or a 401k or something like that, uh, those are attached to you personally, even if you're married and decision-making isn't uh, naturally granted to a spouse. Um, there's certain things the spouse or beneficiary specifically would be able to do after you're deceased. But in, in the instance of incapacitation, which is what we're really concerned about here, uh, it's, they don't have any rights to, to do anything uh, unless you plan for it and, and set up some paperwork to grant them that ability. Exactly. And that's where, where I was going with it. Uh, in the case of a married couple, if you became incapacitated and your spouse has to step in, just because you're married gives them no right to manage your IRA. Right. And the other thing I would point out, you know, kind of the, the second one, which I don't think you were heading this direction, but always pops into my mind. People always assume if you're married um, that something will just happen to one of you. And then the other one will be there to take care of you or to do this, that, and the other thing. What if you're in a car accident, the two of you together? Most retired couples spend a lot of time together. So what happens to one can certainly happen to the other simultaneously. And you have to take that into consideration, too. You can't just rely on your spouse alone being the one to step in if something happens to you. And that is the attorney's uh, point here on what she listed as number one. I don't know. Again, I don't know if she means it's the biggest or it just happens to be her number one out of five. But failure to name an alternative agent. Chris hit the nail on the head there. What if a husband and wife just named each other, never named someone to step in if the both of them can't help or, or one is predeceased the other, or they were both injured in the same accident? If you don't have an alternative agent named or you have one named, who wasn't in an accident, is perfectly cognitively capable, has the ability, but doesn't have the desire, and says, no, I don't want to do it. You can't force someone just because they've been named as an agent to act on your behalf. If that person doesn't want to do it and there's no alternative agent named, there could be a problem. And sadly, many people name perhaps brothers and sisters who are close to their age and may not be in a position to act in their best interest because maybe they are now cognitively declined 
or unable to do it for one reason or another. Now, you can name children, and a lot of people do. But what if the child you name says no? Or there's other any number of reasons why you should have multiple agents named. And this was the point of the attorney. And she points out in her article that if you don't name someone, then the court will appoint a new agent. And she does mention it may be someone you would not have wanted to be named. I'm not an attorney, but I do feel also, though, the court would perhaps appoint a court-appointed guardian that would act in, on your behalf or conservative that's taking care of your property. Um, and they are court-appointed ones. They're professional ones. They're professional fiduciaries. I don't know. I, I that's probably more of a Pete question. If he was yeah, here, yeah, I, I think the issue is someone, a cousin, a family member, where they're going to naturally look first before they fall back on a, uh, you know, a non-related court court appointed person, uh, raises their hand and says, "Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it." And it's the exact person you don't want to do it. The reason they weren't named before is you didn't want them. But now that there isn't a viable agent, the court has to appoint one, and it ends up being that person. That's the real fear here. Um, and they, the court just wouldn't know that to say, oh, no, we need to exclude them because they didn't like them or something like that. And so we need to override it and use this expensive court-appointed one instead. Okay. Her second item that she lists, she says creating a springing power. And I was surprised to read this. And I think in the realm of estate planning, especially in the very narrow section of powers of attorney, very similar in the retirement planning world where you have pro-annuity and anti-annuity people, I have noticed in estate planning, you have pro-springing and anti-springing attorneys. I have read articles lauding the the brilliance of a springing power of attorney. And I have read articles vilifying springing powers of attorney. This attorney seems to be on the latter. She seems to feel a springing power is not recommended. So before I read what she wrote, what is a springing power of attorney, Chris? So that's where the powers granted by the POA spring forth when a trigger event happens. So there's some type of trigger that then causes the POA to be enforceable or valid, granting the agent the power to do what's stated in the POA, but it isn't an immediate action. And and the common thing with what we're talking about is, you know, when I become incapacitated, then I want this person to be able to access my account, make trades, distributions, things like that. Uh, but I don't want him to be able to do it while I'm fine. I only want it to spring forth, those powers spring forth. And I'll have to, now that you've, you know, you mentioned, I'll, I'll have to say I'm, I'm in this attorney's uh, camp uh, generally, rather than it sounds like you citing on the, on the other side where springing uh, is more encouraged or allowable. And I think for me, these types of concerns come from, don't add any more complexity to these documents than there needs to be, because all you do is add better chance that something's going to break or go wrong. So I'm always worried about that. And secondly, the trigger, making sure that the trigger actually is something that the court will honor, will allow, will recognize as the trigger. And there's not this fight that are they really, you know, is, has the trigger really happened and what steps have to be taken to prove the trigger and all that. It just delays what if you need things done in your accounts right away and things get bogged down for a couple months working through the, you know, has the springing actually happened? That's my concern. Not that, not that it wouldn't work. It just makes sure. I think this falls for me in that, in that bucket of unless you're absolutely convinced you need this, don't add this complexity is, is my stance. Yeah, I would put myself squarely in the agnostic realm. I have read, and I wish I had the articles that that, uh, support springing powers and the reasons why. And as I was reading them, they they really laid out some scenarios where, oh, I see why they wanted a springing. Okay, that makes sense. I understand. And then I've read just as many that that, uh, 
mention, like you do and like she does, some of the issues that, that you alluded to. I tend to fall in the middle. I think whatever the client is most comfortable with. But if a client ever said to me, because let's make one thing clear, folks, and I don't think we have. When you create a durable power of attorney and you name an agent, that agent has the power immediately. As soon as you sign and it's witnessed and notarized or whatever the attorney is going to do to activate it, so to speak, the agent theoretically has that power. Now, if they don't have the power of attorney form in their hand, it does them no good if they go to try to take care of, of your accounts. So you can often create a durable power of attorney, let them know that they are agent in the durable power of attorney, let them know where that power of attorney is, just don't give it to them. Yeah, that'd be kind of a, a way to kind of simulate springing that, you know, if I become incapacitated, you go tell, you know, whoever or you go to this and, and this is where you can go get it. But I'll know if you go get it beforehand and I'll look very you know poorly upon you doing that. Uh, that kind of thing. So yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good idea is actually physically, uh, hold back the POA from them so they can't produce it and act upon it while you're not incapacitated and they have to go retrieve it somewhere upon incapacitation. Right. Just giving someone the power is nice and mm -hmm. signing the document is great, but they actually need it right. to go use it. They, they couldn't, pay, yeah. right? They couldn't walk into your bank after you gave them that power and drain half a million dollars from your bank account. Hey, yeah, I got power of attorney. I like to take out half a million dollars. Uh, nope, they're going to need the power of attorney. So, uh, anyways, just understand that nuance. Adorable power of attorney. The agent has the power immediately springing power, there has to be a trigger event. Even though she doesn't get into it in the article, uh, there's generally two uh, doctors that will certify you are incapacitated. That's what I have seen as the main trigger. I'm not an expert in this, but I suppose there could be other triggers, uh, more powerful or, or weaker, I don't know. But I've always seen that two physicians have to certify you are incapacitated and then it, quote unquote, springs. But like Chris said, it's not immediate. If you are in an auto accident and people need to get at your stuff immediately, it could take a while to get two doctors to sign off. Now, that might be a bad example because in an auto accident and you're in a coma, I think the hospital could easily find two doctors who will sign right away. Yes, he's in a coma. But mental incapacity or something like that, that, that could get drawn out and dragged out. So anyways, here's her reasons for not creating a springing. She writes, it's reasonable to expect that your agent will not act on your behalf until you become unable to manage your own affairs. When an agency is conditioned on the incapacity of the principal, what she says there in very legal ease is when your POA is springing and it doesn't take effect until you're incapacitated, it, it is sometimes called a springing agency or springing power because it, quote unquote, springs into existence on the triggering event. Recognize not all states acknowledge springing agencies. They can be a viable option if you ultimately decide what is best suited for your situation. However, springing powers have drawbacks. They create unnecessary delays. And that's what you were saying, Chris. They create uncertainty and strife since the agent must essentially jump through many hoops at a time of need. And keep that in mind. I didn't look at it that way either, Chris. If your agent is a child of yours and they're wanting to help you and they want to get access to your accounts and they're being asked to go to this doctor and that doctor and get this form signed and that form signed and submit it to the custodian. And now the custodian is going to evaluate or, or contact the doctor's office or, or whatever the case is. That could cause a lot of anxiety or stress. I never thought of it that way. But this is from an attorney who probably dealt with this before in her career. She also said financial institutions are reluctant to accept springing powers because they are concerned whether the triggering event has actually occurred. Uh, I never thought of it that way, 
but that's the whole idea of the triggering event. You get something from the doctor, but uh, perhaps she again has seen folks situations where the custodian refuses to acknowledge a springing power because they are unclear if the triggering event actually occurred. It's just going to create delay, like Chris said and the attorney said. So she goes on to say, and I don't want to get too deep into it, but the frictions can be avoided by setting powers that affect immediately. That's the durable power of attorney. It comes into effect immediately. In this case, you can ask your agent not to act on your behalf or not to act unless you become incapacitated. And then she says what I just said, Chris. You can also simply keep the document to yourself until the agent needs it. Remember, folks, it's one thing to grant adorable power of attorney to someone. It's another thing for that person to use it. They need the power of attorney form itself. If you just don't give it to them, it's kind of a poor man springing. I don't want to say poor man's, but it's kind of a, a springing without all the hoops. They have adorable power of attorney. They're just not going to get it until you're incapacitated. Or you're going to tell them, in the event I'm incapacitated, here's where you can find it. Or more often than not, you would probably tell the attorney, uh, it's in my safe deposit box. Or keep it in your office, Mr. and Mrs. Attorney. Some will, some won't. Keep it in your office. And then if my agent needs it, they'll go to you for it. Just some things that I have seen uh, in my practice. But one thing that she says that I say all the time, Chris, when people are reluctant to do adorable power of attorney and they say they don't want to give that person the power right now. They're, they're afraid the person is going to do something nefarious. That makes me scratch my head. She even writes, if you're concerned that your agent may disregard this request and try engaging in transactions not on your behalf, it's probably time to reconsider if you've chosen the right person for this job. I agree. I, I say yeah. that all the time. Let me get this straight, Mr. and Mrs. Client. You don't want to name your son on your durable power of attorney because you don't trust them or him to make wise decisions or to not perhaps steal from you. That's correct. So I want a springing power of attorney so he can only get the power when you can't notice something bad is happening because you're incapacitated. That's what always made me scratch my head on that. If you're afraid to name someone right away and you don't want to give them the power until you're incapacitated, that's when you are least likely to be able to pick up on the fact that they're doing something nefarious. Because a power of attorney form, folks, is very powerful. No pun intended. They can drain your account. The custodian does not demand and are not required to by law to demand receipts or written explanations of what the money is being used for. It is no different than a person calling up a custodian saying, close my account, send me my money. You have to do that. We can't say no. If a person under a POA calls and says, and, and the POA has been authorized and supported, close the account, send us the money. We need it to take care of them. We can't say you need $5 million to take care of so-and-so. That doesn't seem right. Now, any financial planner listening knows we would go to our compliance department first and say, whoa, uh, this client has never taken money out of these accounts. They're incapacitated now. Their son has the power of attorney. Uh, we have a copy. It is valid. He's requesting a full liquidation. We could bring it to, a, if we feel something is nefarious and just doesn't make sense, we can notify authorities in the town, city, county of where the person lives that 
we have this hesitancy. And that has been done in the past, not with my practice ever, but colleagues of mine have done that. And I have read stories of uh, custodians who do that in compliance departments who have done that. Um, it does cause a lot of riff and a lot of consternation, especially if nothing nefarious is being done. And now all of a sudden someone gets the feeling that, wow, you don't trust me. You think I'm going to do this? But there has also been times where nefarious things have been killed in their tracks because the custodians say, whoa, this doesn't make any sense. So it's, it's, it's not a black and white line. It's a gray line for certain. Legally, the agent must act as your fiduciary. Right. That's key. But that is a paper tiger. Hmm. It is worthless. You cannot legislate morality. Just because they have to act as a fiduciary doesn't mean they will. And that's always, it gets me in our industry because a lot of advisors push, I'm a fiduciary. And I save, I have dozens and dozens of articles that I have saved of fiduciaries, RIAs, registered investment advisory firms or investment advisor representatives. They are legally a fiduciary. A registered representative or stockbroker is not a fiduciary. Well, RIAs or IARs love to use the fiduciary as a way to differentiate from non-fiduciaries. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I bristle at the notion that someone who has nefarious intent is all of a sudden, Chris, going to go, oh, damn it. I'm a fiduciary. I can't steal that money. Gosh, what was I thinking? They're yeah, not and I think do that. the other issue is if someone, an agent, is not acting as a fiduciary, many times there's no one in a position to point it out, to complain about it. Um, you're gone, right? Or you're or you're incapacitated. You don't you're not even aware of what's happening, and so who's to you know monitor and know what's going on? And that can be tricky at times as well. And and so I think that is a case where having a a third party kind of looking over the shoulder of not only you, you know, watching for mistakes or strange things that, you know, someone might bring to your attention um, just to make sure everything is okay, but especially when an agent takes over and is are doing things, having someone who's maybe watching things enough to point out to someone who would care that your agent is not maybe acting in your best interest, which is required by the fiduciary standard. Right, and that's something that we uh, see or, or hear from our clients rather uh, is a big fear of theirs and it's something that we strive to do as a firm to we have to honor a poa but if we start to see distributions that just make no sense we do have the ability to speak up we could in extreme examples and it wouldn't be us we would get a hold of the custodian, share our concerns with the custodian, let the custodian's legal team decide if the custodian wants to halt temporarily distributions until they can clear the air. Again, it's, it's a tough situation because you're incapacitated. Oftentimes you might be a widow or a widower. And sadly, the people stealing from you are the very family members you once loved and probably still love and trusted. But money makes people do stupid things. And sadly, I have once read, and I, I didn't come up with this, this, this terminology, but I say it constantly, that more money has been stolen from elderly people through a power of attorney form than at the barrel of a gun. And that is true. And I guarantee you there are people listening to this podcast right now shaking their heads in agreement because you may have been the victim yourself in the sense a family member stole from a parent who was incapacitated and probably in the latter stages of their lives. And everybody has busy lives and children can be in multiple states like I am. I don't even live anywhere near Massachusetts anymore. And it's very easy for the other siblings to trust one sibling 
who seems to be the one who is going to take charge and, and help mama, dad out, only to find later they were skimming dollars off the top. Gee, I'll take $100,000 out to build a ramp for dad's wheelchair. That costs $20,000. Oh, the other eighty is going to go for, for, for my time and, and to help with this. Mom would have wanted this. Mom would have wanted me to spend this money anyways on this. And that's how easy it is to steal under a POA. So it's, it's necessary document, but it's easy for people to steal. And having these protections in place, an impartial third party looking over things is helpful. You sometimes will see custodians speak up. But especially if you're dealing, and Vanguardians, I, I, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but when you're dealing with do-it-yourselfers and you're dealing with an 800 number or a website and doing it all yourself, there's really no strong relationship with anyone there at Vanguard who has truly got a vested interest in your situation, knows what is normal spending and what isn't normal spending, knows what the intent of the family was or the intent of the the widower widower who is now being stolen from always was, is tracking and looking at anomalies and seeing if things just don't look right. They're not doing that. You can get that type of relationship with a, a close financial planner or a tax professional or attorney even, although the attorney doesn't really have access to all the, the finance documents that a financial planner or a CPA would have. But it's hard sometimes to have that third party who could just be kind of looking out and saying, wow, that doesn't look right. Let me get a hold of the custodian and think what they think. Or let me get a hold of the sheriff's department or police department or or law enforcement or senior services in the community of of that person and see what they recommend we do. Not every financial institution is going to take that effort and make that jump and get involved. Okay, I don't want to beat that horse too much. Here's one that's good, and a lot of people overlook it. But she writes, granting overly broad gifting powers. Let's talk about gifting powers, folks. An agent under a POA has to act as a fiduciary in your best interest. They cannot take your money and gift it to other people. Unless that power is specifically granted. What if you always intended to pay for your granddaughter's college education and now you're incapacitated and your granddaughter's daughter, your grand, excuse me, your daughter, your granddaughter's mother is the agent and she knew you were always going to pay for her daughter's education. Legally speaking, She cannot, even though she's agent and you told her you would pay. If that power is not in the POA, legally speaking, she can't do it. She cannot gift. So a lot of people will give gifting powers, but they make them overly broad. And this is what this attorney is picking up on. What could it overly broad be? Let's, let's read what the attorney has to say. One of the most powerful authorities that can be granted under a POA is the power to give away the principal's property to others. There are various reasons to grant gift-making authority. For example, you may want to make sure your agent provides birthday and holiday presents to your favorite podcast host just as you normally would. It's amazing how they put that in there, huh, Chris? Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Your favorite podcast host. Who could that be? be? Very convenient, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Actually, it wasn't your favorite podcast host. It was relatives. Or maybe you want your agent to make charitable donations on your behalf to particular causes that you've been supporting. 
The power to make gifts can help in managing Medicaid eligibility and minimizing estate taxes. For most people listening to this, you're not trying for Medicaid eligibility, but you may be trying to reduce estate taxes, especially if you live in one of the states that have very low $1 million or so estate tax thresholds. The ability to gift property before you die might be beneficial. I'm not saying it's going to work. It would probably come more handy in the case of trying to gift away, for for instance, folks, something that's dropped in value. This is often overlooked. I don't know why it just popped into my head, but you could have uh, an investment that you purchased and you're going to die and it lost value. Losses are lost at your death. There's no benefiting from them. Capital loss, capital loss carry forwards are lost and losses are lost at your death. Gains are wiped out at your death with a step up in basis. You would not want someone to gift just before you die something that has risen in value. But you would want someone to gift something that has dropped in value. Because depending on when that person sells that property or or asset or investment, they may not owe any taxes at all. Whereas if they inherited it from you, your basis steps down to what it was on the day you died. And if they sell it after it recovers, they will owe taxes. I don't want to get too deep. We'll do another show on what I mean. But be able to gift losses at your death or or shortly before you die is very important. If your POA does not give the power to gift, These types of planning strategies, tax planning strategies, can be lost. But she continues. Before granting this power, you should carefully consider the risks involved, including financial abuse and fraud. And that is true. This is that double-edged sword of a POA. If you don't specifically gift, grant the ability to gift, a lot of deathbed tax planning strategies could be lost or even non-deathbed strategies. You could now have Alzheimer's and can't make legal decisions but live another 10 years and your ability to pay perhaps for the education of grandchildren is lost or continuing to give to your church or school is lost because the agent has to act as your fiduciary and do everything in your best interests And courts have found giving your money away is not necessarily in your best interest. So giving the power to gift is important, but if it's too broad, they might start gifting to themselves. And that's what she says. If you're comfortable granting your agent this authority, consider, though, limiting your agent's gift-making ability. Be sure to specify who your agent is authorized who to make gifts to including if the agent should be permitted to gift to themselves. Mm -hmm. Interesting twist there, huh, Chris? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems, unless you absolutely are intending to provide that uh, and you have that level of trust, that one obviously feels the most uh, risky, if you will, or temptation uh, creating for abuse. Uh, Absolutely. But there can certainly be times when that's perfectly appropriate, and that's part of what you want to do, so you do include that. Yep. And she she wraps it up by saying, you should specify the total value of gifts your agent is authorized to make in a given year. And I would go so far as to say, if you have agreed to pay for the college of someone, you should specify how much? Or the next thing you know, they're going to the most expensive school in another state that they can find. Hey, grandma's paying for it. I'm going to go to this school. It's great. It's a potty school. It's in another state. Who cares? Grandma's paying for it. You may want to specify what college or what dollar amount. And I would go so far as to say you may want to specify a GPA. I know I would, and, and I've Heard some attorneys like that idea, and I've heard other attorneys tell me, Jim, you're crazy to do that. What if the kid is just having a bad year? 
I just know that some kids turn school into just a four-year party and they get out and they have a meaningless, worthless degree and the parents are out all this money and it, it's sad. If I was paying for someone's school, I would demand a certain GPA, but that's just me. You, you make your decision you want. But she continues, failing to set a limit on the maximum dollar a gift, excuse me, the dollar value of gifts an agent can make especially to themselves in any calendar year, could also have tax consequences. Absolutely, folks, especially if your money is coming from an IRA or other tax-qualified plan. If they start gifting willy-nilly or sending their daughter to the most expensive out-of-state school that the daughter wants to go to, but 90% of your money is in an IRA, It's a good thing you're incapacitated because you probably wouldn't want to be the one signing that tax return. There's going to be a lot of taxes owed. And then she said, and this is, I could take this argument either way and I'm not, and I'm sure you could too, and everyone listening could. Her workaround, though, was this. Oftentimes, a principal, which means the person creating the power of attorney, a principal will simply impose a gifting limit and set it to the cap based on the annual federal gift tax exclusion. And for 2022, she says, was 16000 That's okay, but most schools aren't going to be 16000 Or if you wanted to have someone gift again, something that's lost in value, and we'll do an EDU show. I like this idea on on step up and step downs in basis, especially at death. You could be faced with maybe you bought something for half a million dollars and it lost 50%. Just trying to use round numbers here, folks. And it's down to 250,000. And it would be wonderful to be able to gift that before your death because that loss will be be lost forever. And I know you might be sitting there thinking you can't gift losses. No, you can't. But the recipient can use, depending on when they sell, a lot of the appreciation from the date of the gift could be excluded from taxes. But if they inherit it, any gain on the value of the asset from the date of death will not be excluded from capital gains taxes. Trust me, folks, gifting something that lost in value is much better than leaving it to someone at death. Whereas gifting something that has risen in value is much worse than leaving it to someone at death. They are the 180 to each other. They're the mirror opposite. And we'll talk about that on a future show. Okay, this the fourth one, very simple. I, this must be an attorney thing because I never even thought of this. Not notifying your current agent that you've replaced them with a new agent. Oh. I guess if they didn't I, know, you could leave behind kind of a fight or mess um, if two people are claiming that they're agents and that just would, again, delay what needs to be done. So I, it's a good idea. I, I just wonder how how often that happens and how big of a deal it really is. But if they if she brought it up, she must have run in. This might be one of those from experience. <laughs> she saw this happen a couple of times. And uh, so I think if there's nothing wrong with it, and I think it makes sense. I think it's not the end of the world, probably. I think it'll get sorted out at some point as the agent. Well, she points out, though, Chris, yeah. in this, that if the POA has been replaced and you haven't notified the agent, or worse, the agent goes to the bank or brokerage house where the old POA is, and it hasn't been revoked, even though they're supposed to revoke it, the agent signs an agreement that they will notify when they have been removed as agent. Well, again, you can't legislate morality. They might be able to steal money before the new POA takes shape. If you are replacing an agent Unless it's very friendly, the agent is, hey, I just don't want to do this anymore for you, mom or dad. Um, so please, you know, name name George. He can take over. I don't mind. But if you're doing something that, hey, I just don't trust this agent anymore. I'm having a falling out with them. I don't get along with them. I would get a hold of the custodians first and cancel 
the power of attorney, the custodians are the places that hold your money. So the banks, the brokerage houses, the IRA custodians, all you Vanguardians, that's Vanguard. I would get a hold of them and revoke the POA. Tell them, do not honor this POA anymore. I've replaced it. I'll be in touch with the new POA and the new agent. I would do that before you tell someone who you are removing under more acrimonious conditions before you tell them they are no longer agent. That would be my recommendation. And the final one is one that we wanted to get to because it's one that Pete, as well as several other top-notch estate planning attorneys have drilled into my head. And it's one that I see quite often being totally ignored by many, many estate planning attorneys. And that has to do with real estate. She lists number five as not planning for real estate powers. She actually says something in here that I never thought of, Pete never even mentioned, and I question if a government bureaucracy is even going to ask for it, but I will read what she has to say. She says, one of the most common powers principals grant their agent is the power to manage their real estate. And you might be sitting and saying, oh, I don't have any rental properties. I don't have anything to worry about. Real estate is your home, folks. It can be a town home. It can be a condo. It can be a single family home. It's your home. If you have title to a piece of property, even if you're living in it, that's real estate. That's your home. It doesn't have to be a second home or investment property or rentals. Okay. This power can include the renting or selling of real estate, the paying for repairs and renovations, and the hiring of agents, real estate agents, to help carry out transactions. That's all very important things, folks, that legally speaking, without these powers, a, a, non, a poorly worded power of attorney isn't going to give that agent the ability to do it because they have to act as your fiduciary. She continues, if you want to grant this real estate power, you might, and I've never heard this part before, Chris, you might need to file your document with your local land records office. I don't know if she means the clerk and recorder uh, in the county or whatever. Yeah, around the country, they're called different things. So I think that's, so that's what she's talking about in our neck of the woods would be the clerk and recorders where all that is. She said, it's a good idea to contact your county's land records office or clerk and recorder in Colorado to learn about their specific requirements. It may have, they may have to ensure your power of attorney document is in compliance. And she gives an example. For example, one office required documents to have specific margin sizes to make room for stamps. Mm -hmm. So it's, I've never heard of getting a hold of them and it never dawned on me, but that might be something you may want to do. But what Peter used to share with me and several other attorneys, real estate, do not use the boilerplate of generalized Informate, uh, uh, wording in most POA documents. And I don't have one in front of me, and I should have. They're about a paragraph long, and it just says, I hereby grant and award and give, or however they were. You know how attorneys write. And then they'll list for real estate, for buying, selling, repairing, transacting, renting. And they list all these possible things you can do with real estate. And that's it. And you might think, oh, wow, that, that's got me covered. Pete has made it perfectly clear. Your agent is going to run into constant trouble unless you specifically identify the real estate that you are granting those powers on right. by legal address and title in the power of attorney form itself. Most will add it as an addendum at the end and just reference in that paragraph that the real estate that this applies to is identified in addendum A or addendum B or whatever the case right. may be. 
which makes it easy for the document to be updated, just a, 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 a amending the addendum. little Correct. tongue twister there. Right, and that's all you have to do is change the addendum, and then boom, there it is. Um, Pete went so far as to say before he left, he started uh, going beyond just listing the legal street address, but he would also put uh, the county right down to the plot uh, and everything. So there was no disputing. Uh, And I guess that idea may have came to him, but something that happened to me. My address was changed. I used to live on Manhead Mountain Drive, and it was changed to Manhead Mountain Meadow because Manhead Mountain Drive was too... No, I was Manhead Mountain Court. There is a Manhead Mountain Drive. Apparently, Court and Drive were too close together, so we became Manhead Mountain Meadow. No, Uh, Manhead Meadow Court. Manhead Meadow Court, whatever. I forget. (laughs) Chris knows because he has property up there now. But I had... My address changed, mm-hmm. and it was a pain in the hiney. I had to get all my documents changed. If I had a POA, I might have forgot to change it in there. The plot, I don't think, changes. No, but legal the legal address, address doesn't change, so that legal address is the safest because that's going to be on all legal titling documents for the property. The mailing address, the post office recognized the general public address can change for a variety of reasons. Okay. The final thing that I want to mention, because that was it. Mm-hmm. One thing that she didn't mention that might be a power, and again, it comes down to how much you trust the person you're granting the power to, but should they be allowed to change beneficiaries on your accounts? Mm. If so, Pete said, and I fully agree with this, identify the accounts. Don't make it broad to any account. What accounts can they change beneficiaries on? And identify it by account type, number, and custodian. So there's no ambiguity. And do you want to grant that ability? That would be really deathbed planning strategies. Who should inherit what accounts? That one you can debate back and forth, but without granting that specific ability to change beneficiaries, no custodian is going to allow someone with a POA to change beneficiaries. You can make that power as broad or restrictive as you want. You can specify that the agent cannot name themselves or any family member, or it can only be used uh, between my three grandchildren based on whatever measures you want to do. You can limit who could be named as beneficiary. You could limit who could do the naming, how much of the account, or whatever. But do you want people to be able to change beneficiaries? That could be something that's important to give to someone. So do keep that in mind especially in the case of parents, perhaps. One spouse is, is, is not doing too well. The other spouse is there. And that spouse is going to inherit the money and maybe they don't need it or want it and they want to get it to their child or grandchild. And they're not on the form, either as a primary or a contingent. Or maybe they want to, I don't know, you want them to leave it to someone else. And you, you, you talked about that before you became incapacitated, but never filled in the paperwork. One could find any number of reasons why you would want to grant the ability to change beneficiaries. That power cannot be done unless specifically granted, just like gifting. Gifting is giving away during your life. Beneficiaries is giving away at your death. Do you want to limit your agent to just giving away your assets during your life? Or do you want them to be able to leave some at your death? That could become very important. Yeah, that's a good one. It's it's powerful and flexible. But um, as with any power you're granting, I think we've made it pretty clear throughout this conversation that there's risk that power could be abused. So you've got to have 
ultimate trust in the person you're granting that power to, because there's always the chance that they could wield that power in a way that you wouldn't be happy with. That's just kind of goes part and parcel to it. So have to kind of weigh the pros and cons and, and decide what's uh, best for you. I think a certain level of this type of planning is appropriate for everyone. Not all of these elements are going to be appropriate for everyone to consider, but, but I think, uh, powers of attorney for controlling financial assets when you're incapacitated are extraordinarily important. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's okay. all I had to say. Okay. Just things to think of when you go though. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but when you go, to your attorney, listen to this podcast again, write things down that are important to you and chat mm-hmm. with them. And if they're reluctant to edit uh, a boilerplate POA or they tell you, oh, no, I got real estate covered. Look at this whole paragraph. It's really neatly worded. See how that's all in there? That legal gobbledygook language, Mr. And Mrs. Client, look how beautiful that is. You don't need to list the the uh, property by legal title. That that podcast host, he's, he's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That's not coming from me, folks. That is coming from some of the smartest estate planning attorneys I have ever met. Implored me to implore my clients to do things like that. So if your attorney is being that flippant, and Pete warned us, they would be. If they're being that flippant, find another attorney. Or put your foot down and say, no, it's not. I want it in there. I'm paying you for your time. Put the damn thing in there. Anyways, that's all I have to say. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, everybody, for listening to the show. If you've got a suggestion for a future EDU show or you want to uh, submit a question for our Q&A show, the best way to do that is submit an email directly to Jim. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And uh, in the subject line, make sure it's uh, very evident that it's a suggestion for the podcast. And uh, hopefully it'll get uh, Jim's attention. We'll, We'll cover something on the show related to your suggestion. So the show only works with your participation as listeners. We really appreciate it. And we'll be back next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 